Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin, which is a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Robert Rucker. He's one of the preeminent researchers on the Shroud, and we'll be talking about a handful of topics and look forward to the discussion. With that, let me introduce Bob. Uh, Robert Rucker earned an MS degree in nuclear engineering from the University of Michigan and worked for 38 years in the nuclear industry doing nuclear reactor design, criticality safety for nuclear fuel production and non-destructive testing or assay of fissile material in containers. He published 41 documents with US government agencies and he has been researching now the Shroud of Turin since about 2013, including application of nuclear analysis computer calculations to solve the carbon dating problem for the Shroud. Extensive information can be uh, found on the Shroud at his website at shroudresearch.net, shroudresearch.net, including 32 papers that are on the research page of his website. Welcome, Bob. Yeah, yes, thank you, Guy. Nice to talk with you. By the way, it's up to 33 papers now. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, well, okay. I'm going to have to get to the, uh, the next one there. I appreciate it. And uh, every one of your papers, of the ones that I've read, and I, I apologize, I haven't read, read all 32, but uh, or now all 33, but I will get to at least some of them. Um, and, you know, one of the things, too, and we mentioned this as we were talking before we got started, is that there is now so much going on and so much being written on the Shroud. It's hard to keep up. It's really hard to keep up. So, uh, but with that, one of the things we wanted to talk about is uh, what has been kind of colloqu- uh, kind of friendly or however known as carbon-14 dating. It's also known as radiocarbon dating, or and it has a handful of different terms. But in any case, let's talk about the carbon-14 dating that was done in 1988. Tell us um, how they came to their conclusion and how they came up with the possible dating of 1260 to 1390. Uh, yes. Um, well, carbon dating uh, is a three-step process. Uh, first of all, you, you have to sample the material. But, uh, you, you don't want to carbon date the entire uh, item because that uh, carbon dating is a destructive process. So they uh, would cut small samples from the shroud and send those to laboratories. Now, the samples should be representative uh, of the shroud. Now, uh, there's a problem at that point because what they should have done uh, is to sample various locations uh, from the shroud in, in order to have a make sure they're more representative of the shroud. Whereas in reality, they cut the three samples right next to each other uh, from the corner uh, of the shroud. Uh, they then sent those three samples to the three different dating laboratories in, in Tucson, uh, Zurich, and Oxford. Uh, they then cut those into subsamples. Uh, and dated those subsamples so that we ended up with 16 uh, carbon dates on the subsamples. Um, so, so that in carbon dating, they're not actually experimentally measuring the date. What they're experimentally measuring is the ratio of carbon 14 to carbon 12. 
the date is a calculated number. Uh, and when they calculate the date from the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12, they have to make an assumption. And that assumption is that, that the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 has only changed uh, due to decay of the carbon-14. Uh, and uh, that is where carbon dating often runs into problems because you can have uh, either contamination uh, bringing a, a different ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 into the material, or you can lose material uh, from, from the sample during the process of history. Um, so that that assumption has to be kept in mind. And that, that assumption, I believe, for the Shroud of Turin is false. That is, that the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 has not only uh, decreased due to decay of the carbon-14, but I believe that there was also carbon-14 that was added to the cloth by neutron capture or absorption uh, in nitrogen-14 in the cloth. Yeah, so that, and you know, if, if you say, was the carbon dating correct? Well, you'd have to say, well, yes and no. They measured the correct value uh, of the carbon-14 to carbon-12 on the cloth samples that they were sent, but they made a mistake in assuming uh, that the decay or the decrease in the carbon-14 to carbon-12 ratio was only due to carbon-14. Right, and I and I think and that makes I think that makes a lot of sense because I think if you were going to be a, a reputable lab, uh, and whether you have preconceived notions as to what the date is or not of the shroud, uh, you still want to make sure that your measurement of the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 for those samples is done absolutely correctly. Now, yes, uh, and they, they confirmed that in the experiment by running what they call standards. Now, a standard is an item of, of known date. So they, they cut pieces of fabric from various pieces of his cloth with a historical date to them so that they dated those other three samples. And they arrived at a reasonably good accuracy in agreement with the history of the cloth so that therefore they proved that their equipment was measuring the correct, for the sample, the correct ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12. So in, in our evaluation, you know, as a shroud researcher, we need to assume that they dated, that they measured the correct carbon-14 to carbon-12 uh, on the samples that they were sent. And um, now, could you prove that those ratios were uh, correct or within at least some kind of a standard deviation or what have you based on the statistics that would result from those uh, uh, subsamples? How many total subsamples were there? 16. 16 subsamples. So is there enough data in the 16 uh, subsamples to statistically say that, uh, that all of those things were within reason and within a reasonable uh, level of error? Well, see, th this, is, this is very interesting because th this is where the problem shows up uh, in the document. Uh, now, now, this is the radiocarbon dating of the Shroud of Turin, uh, which, which is the original document in, in which the carbon dating uh, results were published. Uh, and so what I've done here, I've read this so many times that in reference to this document, uh, this, this is radiocarbon dating of the Shroud of Turin by P.E. Damon 
and I think it was 22 others. Uh, they make it sound like there's a lot of people confirming what they say here. So but, they're trying uh, to uh, reduce the statistical variance by having more people on it. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Yeah. So what I've done here is I've, I've labeled these uh, paragraphs. Uh, I've numbered them. And, and so if you go over to uh, on this document uh, to page five, paragraph 21, uh, it, it starts, I'm sorry, paragraph 23, uh, which starts with uh, more quantitatively. So if you're reading the document, it's, it's on page six, it's under table two. And let me just read this to give the proper context. Uh, more quantitatively, to establish whether the scatter among the three laboratory means, now in, in technical talk, a mean is just an average uh, of multiple values, uh, was consistent with the quoted errors. This is what your question is. A chi-squared test was applied to the dates for each sample in accordance with the recommended procedure of Ward and Wilson. No problem in that, that's what they should have done. Uh, the results of this test given in table two above on page six, show that it is unlikely, now this is where the problem comes up, shows that it is unlikely that the errors quoted by the laboratories for sample one, sample one was the shroud, uh, for sample one, fully reflect the overall scatter. The errors might still reflect the uncertainties in the three days relative to one another, but in the absence of direct evidence, it was decided to give the three dates for sample one uh, equal weight, et cetera, et cetera. So what they've done is unlikely, they said, it is unlikely that the errors quoted by the laboratories for sample one fully reflect the overall scatter. That's the problem in the paper. See, you know, why do they do 16 measurements? Why not just do one measurement? Because every measurement, every scientific measurement has errors in it. There, there's two types of me measurement errors. There are random errors and there are systematic errors. Those are the two classes of errors. Now, random errors, uh, a measurement can be a little bit high one time, a little bit higher than the true value one time, or a little bit lower than the true value the next time. Those are called random errors. And they can deal effectively with random errors by taking many measurements. And that's what they've done. They've taken 16 measurements. <clears throat> just to deal with the issue uh, of the random errors in the measurements. Uh, and so in, when you're doing many random, many measurements, the random errors could be a little bit high or a little bit low so that they tend to cancel each other. So the more measurements that you can do, the more reliably you have the positive and negative errors canceling each other. So we have 16 measurements to deal with. But the problem is with systematic error. Now, a systematic error can cause all the measurements to be higher than the true value, or it can cause all the measurements to be lower than the true value. Uh, and, and the problem, you know, to go to the next level is that you usually have no idea how much the systematic error is affecting the measurement. So if the systematic error is present, the only option you have is to throw out the data. That's all you can do because there's no way to correct it because you don't know what this, the error is in the measurement. Hmm. So, so what, what they do 
it, then it, there is a, a way to determine whether a systematic error is present or not in the measurements. And that is by it, when they take each measurement, see every measurement gives you two values. It gives you the value and the uncertainty in that value. So that by doing a statistical analysis on all the data, you can determine whether all of the values are consistent with all of the uncertainties. And so what they're admitting here in paragraph 23 is that it's not, it's not consistent. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they say, it is unlikely that the errors quoted by the laboratories for sample one fully reflect the overall scatter. They're saying that yes, they've done that statistical analysis and it doesn't work. So we're going to ignore it. <laughs> That's what they say. Yeah. We're going so to assume it away. No. So in other words, what they're saying here is that the, the data didn't give us the results that we want. Because you remember, what they wanted to do was to test their small sample dating technique. Okay, that was their motivation to put in the time and the effort to do these measurements. This is Schroeder-Turin is a, a very uh, high visibility item. So that if you have the laboratories doing these tests, coming up with the right answers, proving their small sample dating technique, the brand new technique, relatively new at that point, then they would have what? What would the results be? Money. Okay? Mm. A lot more organizations would be sending their samples to these laboratories to get their testing because their methodologies have been proven on the Shroud of Turin. And, and of course, th this result was published worldwide. It's such a, a, a high visibility item. So they needed the measure values and measured uncertainties to be consistent with each other, but they weren't. Mm. So that they had to assume the problem away by assuming that the laboratory, that, that the errors in the measurements were underpredicted. That's not science. Right. Okay? That's human philosophy trumping science. Okay. Well, well, that's human avarice, maybe. Or yeah, human, avarice, yeah. yes, desire yeah. for money and prestige. prestige. Mm. It, it's just the human element trumping, uh, trumping good science. Yeah. So what, what we've done now uh, is that when the, and I commend, I commend the work that's been done here. When Tristan Casabianca uh, put in his, his multiple Freedom of Information Acts to the British Museum to try and get them to publish the original data, which, the, the, which they had not done for what, 28 years? Why did they hold the original data back? Something's going on mm. that shouldn't be going on. So, so that we have- So let me interrupt you there. So the paper yes. itself did not have the 16 data points in it. Um, let, let me, uh, well, this is interesting. They only quoted 12 data points. Hmm. They didn't want to quote the 16 data points. So hmm. that for the Tucson laboratory, they took their eight measurements and collapsed them into four measurements, which they then published. Hmm. Okay. So they published 12 values, not 16. My goodness, <laughs> all these manipulations that are being done. Yeah. Um, 
And what, what did that accomplish for them? Well, that eliminated the high value and the low value mm. to make the values more consistent with one another. Mm. Okay. Well, you know, uh, to use their to use their terminology, it looks like they took their statistics and they flogged it. So many things wrong with this. Mm. It's just embarrassing for any scientist to be associated with this, mm. I would say, when, when you look at it in, in all seriousness. So so that there were not only uh, Tristan Casabianca's paper, but there were three other papers. Uh, peer-reviewed and published in peer-reviewed journals uh, based upon the data that Tristan Casabianca published in his paper. And they all come to the same conclusions that the, that the values are inconsistent with the uncertainties so that there, there evidently was a systematic error present. Now they don't say it that way. They like to, they prefer to say it that the, that the uh, measurements indicate that the subsamples were homogeneous. Well, that's just a different way of saying that they, they were different from the true value based upon a systematic error. Mm. So I, I prefer the other way of communicating it. That, that's all that's going on. But mm. we now have four papers that, that show that the only result that, that is scientific is to simply take the carbon dating of 1260 to 1390 and throw it out. Mm. Now, let, let me back up a little bit. Uh, the, so the, when they take the subsample values were then averaged uh, to give a mean value for each laboratory, which were then averaged to give a total average. And that total average was 1260 to third, uh, plus or minus 31, 1260 plus or minus 31. But the carbon 14 content in the atmosphere varies. And that has been shown by tree ring counting mm. so, so that the carbon 14 to carbon 12 measurement can be corrected by tree ring counting. And when that's done, uh, the value that's obtained is a date of 1260 to 1390, an average of 1325. And they quote that as two sigma. Well, it's only two sigma if your 1260 plus or minus 31 is absolutely certain. And it's not, that should be thrown out. So the two sigma <laughs> is totally false in my so, view. So they flogged it again. <laughs> yeah, so, there, so there's so many errors in this that it's, it's just pathetic to be associated with it. And I'm sorry for the names of the people, good people in general that were associated with it, but it's just the human element coming in to it in order to direct the results. In other words, the results were goal-oriented in order to validate their small sample uh, dating technique. Mm. Well, and that, and you're right. That is uh, such a shame. And then, uh, and what that did to the overall study of the shroud for 20, 30 years, I don't remember when uh, Casabianca's paper came out, but I think it was like 2012 or 15. So that's that almost 19, 30. March 22nd, 2019. Yeah, so almost uh, 33 years, uh, roughly. And I, I don't know, I'm not doing the math right, 31 yeah. years. And, uh, and for 31 years, then the true results of that carbon-14 dating done by those three labs was, uh, uh, was, was hidden. The results were hidden yes. and, uh, and took 30 years to finally get it out. And, and then now to 
unfortunately, as you know, it's so it's so difficult once a piece of news gets out there, it's so difficult to retract it. And none of the papers, none of the magazines, none of the any of the publications that publish those results have issued a retraction and which yeah. they should, which they should. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So it, it's done two things. It's influenced, you know, through the media, the media just, the media has so many problems in properly <laughs> reporting science. Mm. Uh, it's very unfortunate uh, because uh, people who do media are not scientists in general and they don't understand it. Right. So, uh, so what it's done is that it influenced people for a generation. When I talk to uh, young people, they're not familiar with the Shroud of Turin. And so I tell them why with the, with the carbon dating. But it's, it's influenced even people that are closely associated with the ownership and care of the Shroud of Turin. influenced them uh, mm -hmm. to, to think that, well, maybe the Shroud isn't authentic mm. because uh, on, based upon this uh, 1325 date, the average of 1260 to 1390. Uh, and they shouldn't be thinking that way. So in other words, the owners of the Shroud, those who care for it uh, in Turin, have been influenced by faulty science. And so they're hesitant to allow mm. the shroud to be tested further. Now that's the long-term effect. And this, this whole business has reduced funding and the number of people that are interested in researching it. Whereas there should be a lot of people interested in researching this. Yeah. And, and that's why now that we have four papers, four peer-reviewed papers in peer-reviewed journals, uh, all coming to the same conclusion that the only the only way to handle this is to throw out the data. That again, we have a resurgence of interest in the possible authenticity of the Shroud of Turin. Well, let me uh, interject something there. Um, now, uh, one of the things though that kind of started uh, as we started with this discussion is that those uh, 16 data points though, measuring the ratio of carbon 14 to carbon 12, um, I, th I think we think those are correct. Mm -hmm. I think we would say that those are correct. They were measured properly. They were tested against the control. And so therefore now we have 16 data points that hopefully at some point we'll be able to get more, but right now we have 16 data points. Yeah. Now you've come up. Yeah. yeah, we should say that the dates are not correct, but the measured ratios are correct. Exactly. We can make that clarification because each the calculated date for each of those 16 subsamples was calculated using a wrong assumption that, yep. that, that, the, that the ratio only changed due to decay of uh, carbon-14. But the fact that we have those 16 incorrectly calculated dates tells us what the measured value of the ratio should be. And that value is correct. Yeah. And so now we have uh, what we believe are 16 correct ratios, not yes. dates, but ratios. Yes. And so now you've taken those and you've come up with a theory. It's called the neutron absorption theory. And uh, why don't you tell us uh, about that and then how these 16 data points can uh, potentially be uh, or you've used to uh, to help to now put a, an age to the shroud? Uh, uh, yes. Well, uh, this goes back to. Uh, a letter to the editor to the same issue of uh, Nature magazine that published the, the uh, item on, on carbon dating. Uh, and this was on, on page 
594, I have it right in front of me here. This was done by Thomas J. Phillips, who was working at the Harvard Laboratory at the time, PhD in physics. He's now working in cosmology. I have visited with him. Very nice man, enjoyed my visit with him very, not, very much. But he basically said that uh, uh, if whatever value the carbon dating uh, gives for the shroud, you should realize that it could be wrong based upon neutron absorption producing new carbon-14 on the shroud. And the mechanism that, that he suggested was neutron absorption in uh, carbon-12. Now, there's actually three different mechanisms that neutron capture or absorption can, can uh, create new carbon-14 on the shroud. But carbon-12 is not the major item. It's actually nitrogen-14. I think produces hmm. would produce about 96% uh, of the new carbon-14 uh, on the cloth. So, so I, you know, uh, now I didn't realize that he had said said this until uh, years after he published this, Thomas Phillips in 1989. Uh, I I read uh, the the document on carbon dating uh, probably a few years after it came out in 1989. Uh, and at that time, uh, I had, I think it was 19 years of experience in calculating neutron distributions in nuclear reactors. So that, that experience was valuable because sitting in the library after reading that, that document, uh, it occurred to me that the three dates from the three laboratories were in ascending order. That is that they became more recent the further you get from the bottom of the cloth. Uh, and it, it, if that wouldn't be the case, unless there's what, what's normally called a systematic measurement error, something is causing that, that distribution to be shifted, you know, uh, as you move from uh, the, the, uh, the three different laboratories, they were cut uh, they were three samples that were sent to the three laboratories. They were cut right next to each other. So there was only a, a centimeter or so, you know, some, uh, just a portion of an inch difference between the three samples. But the three laboratories were able to pick up this, this difference in the dates, even though they were that close to each other. So the change in the date is about 36 years per centimeter, about 91 years per inch. So if you move the sample point up one inch, the date that you obtain by carbon dating changes by 91 years. If, now, significantly here, at that rate, if you move the sample point up just 10 inches, that would shift the carbon date by 910 years, which would shift it to the future from today. Well, that can't be. You know something is going wrong. Mm. So what is it? So, so we, we have not only the average value, that is the one value, when they average it, everything. Uh, so that was the 1260 to 1390. You have the three values from the three different laboratories, uh, which, which tells you that, that there was a, a shift of about 91 years per inch as you progress, as you move the sample point away from the bottom of the cloth toward the center of the body. Okay, but you also have the 16 data points, which give you the total distribution, not only maybe it, you might call it the X direction, but also in the Y direction. 
of, of where the, these subsamples were located uh, as they were cut from the three samples. So that when you take all those 16 subsamples into account and do a chi-squared uh, statistical analysis on it, you come up with only a 1.4% probability that the answer that they give in their document is correct. Mm. In other words, there's a 98.6% probability that it's not correct. That is, that the uncertainties are not consistent with the with the dates. Yeah, that's uh, that is that's incredible. Uh, you know, yes. a, a 98.6% probability that it's wrong is yes. just uh, it's that's a huge number. It's yes. a huge number. Oh yes, it is. Can you imagine? And you know, just to put it in real terms, you know, you're flipping a penny heads or tails. That would mean that when you flipped it a hundred times, it landed as heads ninety-eight to ninety-nine times out of a hundred. Yeah, that's yes, almost if, impossible. Yes, if you were told that uh, on your flight from from here to Timbuktu that the plane had a ninety-eight percent chance of crashing, <laughs> would you get onto it? Would you buy into the one point four percent probability? that it's not going to crash. I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's not a reasonable thing to do. Mm. Right, right, right. Uh, interesting, and I don't know, it's getting into the weeds, but, uh, you know, and, and, and so maybe it gets in a little bit too much, but uh, interesting point that you make that the uh, neutrons that are being absorbed actually change then the nitrogen 14 to carbon 14 as opposed to kind of upweight the carbon 12 to a carbon 14. Oh no, yeah, they, they immediately kick out a proton. Mm. Neutron hits it, immediately kicks out a proton. And, and, and you see what happens is that that then changes uh, the number of protons in the atom from uh, what we're from seven to six. Which changes from nitrogen to carbon. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that then what, what I did was, you know, on, on the realization that there was something seriously wrong with, with the data, uh, in the conclusions in this document, uh, and the fact <clears throat> that the three uh, mean or average values from the three laboratories uh, were, were con consistent in being different, that they have a slope from one to the other as you move up. And uh, so based on that, I ran nuclear analysis computer calculations using my computer code that I had been using for about the previous dozen years. And that's called MCNP. And so I, I assumed that neutrons would be emitted homogeneously, which means uniformly throughout the body a model of the human body in, in simple geometric bodies uh, wrapped in a linen cloth located on the back bench in a limestone tomb as it would have been constructed in, in first century Jerusalem. And this was in the, in the first half of 2014. I ran between 400 and 500 MCNP calculations, each one taking between six and 13 hours to follow 30 million neutrons one at a time in order to get good statistics uh, on the result. Uh, and so in that process, I was able to calculate the neutron distribution in the tomb, which I, after 19 years of calculating neutron distributions in 
nuclear reactors. I had a good feel for it. And a lot of engineering is based upon your experience and the result, does it feel right? Is it reasonable with all of your experience? And this, this was, I knew it would be a, 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 what's called a cosine shape, being a, a lower at, at the feet and at the head, maximizing over the body. And that's exactly what the calculations showed. Uh, so the, 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 the neutron distribution was uh, sloped uh, very much then down by the feet. It was falling off. That would cause the uh, samples that were tested by the three laboratories to give different dates. And the, the MCNP calculation of the neutron distribution <clears throat> would tell me how many neutrons were, were absorbed in each one of those samples. And it agreed very nicely uh, with the values that were uh, obtained by the laboratories. Now, I want to restart those calculations at some point and try and refine the calculations. In those set of calculations, I didn't use any acceleration techniques as they're called, but I need to, to get better uncertainty because I wanna get smaller volumes. I wanna get down to the subsample uh, mm. area. Uh, and, and so I need to restart those calculations. But uh, that then uh, uh, was, was consistent with the 1260 to 1390 average value. It was consistent with the uh, slope in the dates that the three laboratories obtained. Uh, and it was uh, reasonably consistent with the distribution that's obtained. At least I thought it would be based upon my engineering experience. Mm. Uh, it would be consistent uh, with the distribution of the 16 subsamples. Now, I, I qualified it that way because we don't know exactly how they cut the 16 subsamples from the three samples. So you have to go through a process of going through all reasonable ways in which they could cut it in, in order to do that analysis. And that would be a rather lengthy process. And I've not done that yet, but that's something mm. uh, else to do. But in, so, the process, in the process of realizing that all the evidence indicates that at least the hypothesis is consistent with everything that we know about carbon dating, that there were neutrons that were homogeneously emitted from the body. Well, if that's the case, what about other components of the atoms in our body? Well, the other components of atoms in our body would be electrons and protons. So then uh, based upon that, then I worked out a mechanism uh, for uh, that, that would be a good explanation, call it a hypothesis, for explaining how the images, the front and back images on the cloth were formed by charged particles mm. emitted in the same radiation burst. So in other words, there was a radiation burst from the body is my hypothesis. The neutron shifted the carbon date and the, pro the charged particles, electrons and protons, caused the images. This yeah, let me, let me interrupt you right there, uh, just to go back. So you're uh, the, uh, I think you called it the MNCP uh, calculations were done on only the three results. And uh, what you said you wanted to now do that on the 16 results. Um, and then the problem is though, you don't, what we don't have evidence for is what is the sequence of those 16 samples, whether they were, you know, one, two, three, four, five, or whether they were five, four, two, five, 16 yeah. or something like that. Okay. And so then- yeah, let me let me qualify that just a little bit. Uh, the the MCNP 
code uh, produces a distribution which you then have to normalize. Mm. And so what I did was that the, the main value was the 1260 plus or minus 31, the uncorrected value. So I normalized the entire distribution to the 1260 value. Mm. I then looked at a little bit closer to the center of the body and a little bit closer to the bottom of the cloth to get the overall slope and it matched the, the experimental mm. data very nicely. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh, very interesting, and um, and that makes sense as potentially a uh, you know a next round of study uh, using those sixteen potentially data points. Exactly. And right. yeah, and now, that's why I have to refine the calculations mm. using acceleration techniques to get to uh, allow me to get good statistics on smaller areas. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And uh, all right. So now uh, what the neutron uh, uh, absorption theory does is it basically says that is how the carbon 14 to the carbon 12 ratio is potentially wrong. It potentially uh, 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 um, determines or uh, explains the variance that you have in the three measurements that those three measurements kind of slope forward. And then one thing you said as well, which I, uh, I want to bring out is that as you then go up the body and up towards, I guess, the, uh, the torso and, and at some point, the measurement, potentially the measurement of the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 could point you to a date that's in the future. Yes, uh, but I, my calculations are that I think it's about 90% of the area of the shroud would carbon date to the future. From today, right? It would now. Now, what when I'm saying that? What I'm saying it, is that they would measure a ratio of carbon fourteen to carbon twelve, and when they apply their same assumption mm. and equations to calculate the date from the measured carbon fourteen to carbon twelve ratio, the date they would obtain would be to the future. Of course, it can't be to the future. That <laughs> that that indicates that there's something basically wrong with it. So, so that the, the dates on the dorsal image would be further to the future than the dates on the front image because the neutrons that were going downward would uh, scatter off of the nuclei and many of them would come back to push the date further to the future. Hmm. So that the date under the, on the uh, dorsal image under the body at the center of the body mass should date, according to my calculations, if I'm doing the, these things right, should date to about 8,500 AD. <laughs> so maybe that's when Jesus will come back for us. So we just have a couple of thousand years to wait. I'm yeah, ready. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> in, that indicates just uh, how wrong this is. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and how it, wrong, it, wrong, wrong their conclusion was. Yeah. And well, why it was wrong. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So now we've we have a uh, a, a working uh, theory with really good uh, uh, data behind it, and then of course there's oh, there's always improvement. Uh, now let's talk about the um, uh, the next piece of it is, is so what happens to the the protons and the electrons that are in the body? Okay, just very quickly here. I think we're coming to we're, we're approaching the end of this. Well, but, we can uh, go a little bit longer, so that's okay. Yeah. So the the protons and electrons there they would be uh, emitted vertically collimated. You need to have it vertically collimated in order to form a good resolution image. You can't just have it going in all different directions. It has to be vertically collimated. 
exactly because there aren't are not there are not billions of lenses between the body and the cloth to focus uh, focus this on each fiber so the only option is to have this vertically collimated to form the the good resolution image so that those charged particles then are absorbed on the cloth uh, so that you have a, a char electrical charge difference between the body and the cloth, both, both top cloth and bottom cloth, uh, as this oscillation continues. Uh, and so that would, that would create just like a thundercloud going over uh, ground uh, with multiple lightning rods on it. Uh, when the electrical charge gets large enough and the separation between the tip of the lightning rod and the thundercloud gets small enough, you have a lightning bolt. That's what's happening. So, so we're having little static charges be emitted from the high points uh, where the distance between the body and the cloth uh, is the minimum. And that explains the modeled appearance uh, of the discoloration on the cloth. You, you have to arrive at your hypothesis to explain all of these features. Now, the, the, the charged particles, of course, are going through the air between the body and the cloth. And that air is absorbing the charged particles. It's scattering them. And depending on what the charged particles actually are, I'm, yeah, I mostly talk about neutrons uh, protons and electrons, but we don't know that. But it's just most likely, it seems. But they could all charge particles could also be decaying. Okay. Mm. But but as they go across the air gap between the body and the cloth, the the intensity, that is the number of particles, is diminishing. And that is the cause of the three-dimensional information on the cloth. Okay. Yeah. And so what okay, do you so, have? Yeah, so that we have an explanation for the 3D uh, information. And I don't think any other hypothesis explains it. And also you have a, an explanation of the clarity of the image. Because like yes, you said, if, the image. If, it, yeah. if everything just went off in all directions, then you would not have a clear image. You have to have them going off in basically the same up and down uh, directions, which is your term, vertically collimated. Mm -hmm and a vertically collimated radiation burst to be able to get a relatively clear image on both sides of the, oh, yes. uh, both sides of the shroud. Uh, oh, yes. And, and the, you know, the, this hypothesis was developed uh, from the evidence it, itself. So that as, as far as I know, as far, I've accounted for all of the evidence that I'm aware of uh, related to the uh, image on the shroud. So, so that this what I'm saying is there would be a static discharge from the high points on the cloth, but that static discharge would be only from the top one or two fibers in the thread, thus explaining the superficiality uh, uh, on the threads. Now, this rapid uh, up and down oscillation uh, of the radiation burst within the short duration, maybe a microsecond, whatever, but within that very short duration uh, of the radiation burst, there, there's a more rapid oscillation between up and down. So that what that causes is an alternating current in the fibers, which has a very interesting effect. An alternating current in a conductor 
forces the electrons based upon just the interaction of the magnetic field and the electric field, according to physics. It causes the electrons to flow in, in alternating directions. That's what alternating current is. The electrons flow back and forth in alternating current. It would cause that electron flow to be very close to the surface of the fibers. And that would cause heating right at the surface of the fibers, which would cause discoloration right at the surface of the fibers, thus explaining the extreme superficiality of the discoloration on the fibers. I don't know of any other hypothesis that explains it. Well, and, and to your point about the, uh, the alternating current, so the current and the electrons and protons are going up and down, down and up, up and down, yep. down and up. And that also explains potentially why then you have an image on the top of the, the, the cloth that was on the top and the cloth that was on the bottom. Yes, and the quality of the front image and the dorsal image is, is very similar. And why is that? Because on the top image, you only have the weight of the cloth on the body, whereas on the uh, back image, you have the weight of the body on the cloth. So the image production mechanism uh, must be independent of the weight hmm. as if something is being emitted from the body. Now, another indication here uh, is that the cloth uh, is an interwoven fabric. Uh, and, and so that the fibers, the threads that go over the top of other threads create a shadow on the underlying fibers, hmm. thus indicating that something was flowing from the body to the cloth to cause a shadow. Hmm. And a shadow also, in the sense of no discoloration. Hmm. And also to your point that the mass or weight of the body is kind of independent of the image which then means that you could have uh, your hair. So the hair on the side of the image is relatively low mass because it's hair. And certainly there's blood and maybe sweat and, and, and other you know, liquids in there from, from his death. And uh, so then that explains why the hair can also have an image just like the face, the nose, the knees, the legs, and, and every other part of his body. But yes, this explanation really is beautiful. Uh, because yes, the, the hair would be uh, emitting charged particles in this hypothesis, uh, and, and that the, the, these particles would be emitted throughout the body, homogeneously, uniformly mm. in the hypothesis, so that they would be mostly absorbed in the body, so that it, it's only the particles that are getting out that, that, that are emitted close to the surface of the body that are actually getting out of the body. Now, what that means is that bones on the body can be imaged on the shroud. Mm. And, and we, for example, the, a lot of people have believed that, that we can see teeth on the image. Now, you know, there's been a lot of pushback on that. Uh, and I, I'm not sure that we're actually seeing teeth. What, uh, we see something going on right at the mouth uh, there, but I'm not sure it's teeth we're seeing. Mm. It could be what's called an interference pattern. And an interference pattern results from the wave behavior, in this case, of the particles. Because mm. when you're talking about particles with energies, you're talking about the duality of, of, of a particle having both a particle and a wave nature. So that this could be, and I, I at this point, I haven't thought through it 
a lot. You know, I suspect that this is an interference pattern that we're seeing, so that it, it would be the result of the wave nature of the particles that are being emitted, confirming that it's being that it's particles that are being emitted from mm. the body. Yeah, interesting. Now, very one, interesting. yeah, very interesting, and uh, would love to as as that as your thinking there progresses, would love to uh, learn more about that. Now, one thing uh, as an objection to what you're saying, uh, and I think it's pretty easily explainable is that, well, how can cloth, cloth is an insulator, how can cloth actually be a conductor? And, uh, and I'm sure there's a handful of different possibilities there. Uh, one of the things that I think about, though, is, you know, to your point, when the voltage gets high enough, even air breaks down and becomes a, a conductor. And certainly a microwave, which is then a, you know, a certain frequency where the microwaves are actually going through the air. And so maybe some, if you have some thoughts on, on that and how that alternating current then helps to explain that. Uh, yes, well, this would be, be a prediction. You know, a good hypothesis is consistent with the evidence and, and makes uh, predictions that are testable. Okay. Um, right. Yes. Uh, I, I, could I take a break at this point? Can you put things together or not? We can, I, absolutely. Yes. Uh, why don't, let me let me go answer the door. There are people. Okay. Here. G- I'll put a- it on pause and then come back. Uh, so one thing that's kind of interesting is that, uh, or as a potential objection would be that how could linen, which you would think as being non-conductive, it's not like a wire or a metal, how could it actually conduct electricity or conduct uh, you know any kind of a charge? And, uh, you know, and I, I think of air certainly being an insulator, but once you get to a certain voltage, lightning does strike. And then you also have microwaves, which also go through the air. And so you do have, you know, with certain frequencies and for certain high voltages, you do have the ability for what would conceivably be a non-conductor actually conducting electricity. Any, any thoughts on that? Oh, well, yes. Um, you know, we're talking about an extremely brief, extremely intense burst of radiation, which would cause an extremely intense, extremely brief uh, increase in the charge uh, on the um, shroud, on the fibers. Uh, And and so the hypothesis makes predictions. A a good hypothesis, as I said before, is consistent with the evidence uh, and makes predictions that can be tested. So this would be one prediction that would be testable, that uh, a fiber, a linen fiber, uh, could be could have a, a sufficiently uh, intense burst of alternating current in it uh, that the fiber would conduct uh, electrons uh, and, and that they, those electrons would then cause discoloration in the extremely thin outer region of the fiber, only less than 0.2 micrometers thick compared to the 15 to 20 micrometer uh, diameter of of the uh, fiber. So so yes, so the idea here is that there could be experiments to determine uh, what the the range of voltage that, that would be necessary to cause these things. And I suspect that based upon the image on the shroud, that it would be possible uh, uh, in this experiment, that this experiment would produce positive results, that a fiber could conduct electricity and that it could uh, cause a discoloration on the very thin outer region of the fiber.
Yeah, that I find uh, super fascinating. Um, we've been going for quite a while now. I did want to get to one last question, and um, and that is how the dried blood from the body. Uh, so one of the assumptions is that there was certainly blood on the body uh, from a lot of the wounds, and then uh, and then uh, from the scourging and and other you know other wounds that he received in his wrists and his legs and what have you. And uh, but how did the blood on the body then get transferred to the cloth? Uh, yes, uh, th this is an issue, and and actually between Segunda Pia's. Uh, photography of, of the shroud in 1898 uh, and uh, what would be the year Pro probably uh, 1973 or so uh, when, when uh, John Jackson started his work that, that the main effort of, of all those experts was on the blood primarily because they figured that was the most difficult thing to explain uh, you know how, how could there be uh, it, Halos around the blood clots that are only visible uh, under ultraviolet light, things like that. And, and the, the preciseness uh, of the perimeter of the blood clots, et cetera. Uh, so that there, there's multiple different concepts to, to explain that, that there's a, there is just, well, the blood was wet and so it just absorbed into cloth. Uh, or there's fi fibrinolysis concept that it was uh, re-wetted by uh, action of enzymes. Uh, but it seems like to me at this point, I, I don't think those fully explain it uh, because it seems like something has to thrust the blood off the body onto the cloth from underneath the blood. Um, and for example, the main item of, of interest for me on, on this is the blood that would have dried uh, on the arms. That, that is blood was draining down from the nail wounds in the wrist onto the arms. Uh, those that blood on the arms, it would have pl had plenty of time to dry. You know, he was probably on the cross for uh, a couple of hours after uh, he died. Uh, so that uh, the interesting point on that blood is that there's no wounds underneath it. It's simply blood, dried blood on the body. So how do you get it on the cloth? Because it is on the cloth now. So it seemed to me like that would be best explained by something thrusting it off the body onto the cloth. Well, it, when I realized that, it occurred to me that this concept of, of vertically collimated uh, radiation burst of various particles, neutrons, protons, and electrons, they in, in their movement would have a physics quantity called momentum. And when, when those particles hit the blood, if the radiation burst were sufficiently brief and sufficiently intense. Now, maybe that could be experimented on and determined what it would be, uh, but that, that would then thrust the blood off the body onto the cloth. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that I know that that's how it happened, but what I'm saying, I think, is that people who are investigating the blood issue, that should be one of the possibilities that they're thinking of. Yeah, and there's definitely uh, a lot of challenges with the blood and, and the fact that the there is no image underneath the blood um, and, and you know, how that blood then, if it was dry or if it was maybe not totally dry or if it was still kind of, you know, thick and, and whatever uh, because of all of the, you know, the edema that was in it, that, uh, you know, that I was always thinking that it was just contact where the blood was contacting the 
uh, you know, the cloth and then therefore it just transferred over. But interesting to think that it may have dried because he was on the cloth uh, several, you know, maybe an hour, maybe two hours, maybe three hours between the time he died and between the time the cloth may have actually been put on the body. And so then would that blood have dried? And then how would it have actually then been transferred up or transferred down to the the, the front or the dorsal uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pieces of the shroud? Yes, I, th I think you encounter a great difficulty in explaining the pristine nature of the blood on the shroud, unless there's some mechanism to thrust it off the body onto the cloth. And it would have to be thrust off vertically collimated in, in mm. order not to splatter. Okay, now, and the other thing is that you do seem to have a blood on the cloth where the cloth would not have been touching the body. And I think you can find several examples of that un under the uh, knee on the bottom side of the mm. kneecap, for example, uh, bottom side of the legs, for example. Uh, and how in the world can that be if, if there's no contact? It would have to be moved across the air gap between the body and the cloth. So it has to be accelerated, you know, thrust, forced, or accelerated mm. off the body onto the cloth. And that just falls into a third explanation uh, for uh, in this uh, vertically collimated radiation burst hypothesis. So, so that it's not only a good hypothesis uh, that in explaining multiple mysteries here, the carbon dating, the image formation, and the blood on the cloth, it'd be called a very good hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I would only change one word there. It's not the carbon dating, it's the carbon ratios. <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, now, uh, one thing I read that uh, you've uh, uh, written about as well is that you think there might be an opportunity to do some testing, carbon testing, carbon ratio testing, I'll call it, on some of the material that was removed from the shroud, I think it was in 2001 or 2005, as they tried to do further preservation of it. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I think it was two, 2002, as I remember, mm. but, but they were uh, doing a renovation of the shroud where they took the backing cloth off. They also took the, the patches that were, there's 16 patches where one corner of the shroud had burned in a fire in 1532. Uh, and so they took those off. Uh, and it, in, when they took those off, what they discovered what was that there was fully carbonated material underneath, still in fabric form. Uh, and so they broke that off and put it into 42, I believe, uh, sample jars, very small sample jars that were then put in, into the vault in Turin, Italy, and they've remained there ever since. So one obvious thing is to do carbon dating on on the material in those 42 uh, sample jars and compare the results with my prediction that 90% would date to the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that is uh, interesting because then those pieces, although you certainly have, uh, you know, carbon, carbon ratio testing is uh, destructive, but basically those, those samples now are potentially available and, and could be tested in a destructive way, plus they're from all over the shroud. So it's not just the corner where the previous carbon dating uh, samples were taken. It's now you know, samples from uh, throughout the whole shroud. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure how those 
sample jars were categorized. You mm. know, what I would like to see would be that the uh, samples were torn off from this particular location and put into mm. this particular sample jar. But there was also carbon that because of the, the shroud has been folded and, and rolled so many times, uh, you know, the, this, this carbon material uh, has moved around mm. between the, the cloth and the backing cloth. And so that was then gathered up and put into sample jars as well. So that that would be kind of, you know, but you could still use it for, for dating uh, to determine whether it dates to the future. Right, right, right. right. How and, interesting. And in doing such dating on this material that's already been removed from the cloth, you wouldn't be affecting the appearance of the shroud at all. Right, right. It's a, uh, you've already, so to speak, destroyed that piece. And yes, it was destroyed. In, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, um, I'm hoping that uh, hopefully here in the next handful of years, the, uh, the Vatican who now owns it or the Pope who now owns the shroud will then start to allow some more scientific testing as the news kind of disseminates about the falsehood of the carbon 14 date that was done in 1988 to realize that that now has so many errors in it that we need to, that science does have a way to do some reliable, uh, uh, you know, analysis of, of different aspects of the shroud, including the, uh, specifically the dating. Yes. Yeah. So uh, with that, uh, let's close. I could, I, I think you and I could talk forever. Uh, I'm a, I'm a recovering engineer. And so I love all this stuff. And then, yeah. And so I could talk about it with you forever. And, uh, and unfortunately we probably ought to break, but uh, so, but thank you so much, uh, Bob. It's been really fantastic. And, um, and if you want to learn more about uh, Bob's work and now his 33 papers, uh, you can find more information at shroudresearch.net, shroudresearch.net. And if you'd like to, you can email Bob at info at shroudresearch.net. Uh, thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate it. Yes, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I love talking to you. And uh, for the audience, if you're interested in other videos, please go to guypowell.com and sign up for more videos. And also, if you like this one, then please rate it with five stars. Uh, and thank you. Thank you.